Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 15 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi weekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we are pleased to present a conversation with Lion Tree executive in residence, Betsy Morgan, and the founder and editor in chief of The Information, Jessica Lesson. The information is considered one of the premier subscription digital news publications focused on Silicon Valley and the global tech industry. Enjoy the conversation. We begin with our KinCast quiz question, courtesy of Jeremy Adam. Listen to the end to see if you got it right and hear all the details. Which of the following digital news properties has the most monthly unique visitors? A. Fox News. B. The New York Times, C, CNN, or D, Yahoo News. Before founding the information in December 2013, Jessica Lesson spent eight years at the Wall Street Journal covering the tech and media industries. Nearly four years later, they've moved markets, gotten the early scoop on billions of dollars of acquisitions, and told you what's happening deep inside companies like Apple, Facebook, and Google. Their stories have been followed by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Bloomberg, and many other major outlets thousands of times over. Today, Jessica shares insights about her company's unique business model, why their comment section is so robust and informative, and what she thinks the most underreported tech story of the year is. I'm here with Jessica Lesson, founder and CEO of The Information. Jessica started the information in late 2013 after almost a decade of amazing reporting at the Wall Street Journal covering tech and media. And I remember well when Jessica left New York for San Francisco and how sad I was that New York had lost this fantastic journalist to Silicon Valley. What Jessica went on to build in San Francisco was pretty incredible and unique. Her company's influence in the technology community both locally and globally, has been profound. Jessica and her team of reporters are breaking stories at a faster rate than established media, for sure. And what must be truly gratifying is watching her old employer following news that is broken first at her company, The Information. But what I like best about The Information, even more than the journalism, is the business model. It is subscription-based, it is successful, and it is growing. And in fact, this past year, subscriptions doubled. So that leads me to my first question. Jessica, how does it feel to be a media mogul? Oh, well, Betsy, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's awesome to be here. A media mogul. I feel like I'm an entrepreneur. You mentioned our growth rate. For me, that's what it comes down to. Four years ago, there was a sense that people wouldn't pay for content and journalism online. And we just didn't buy it. We thought it was because there was nothing worth paying for. And so we've been focused on proving that you can grow a meaningful audience of people who do pay for journalism. That's what gets me up in the morning. I just focus on where that next doubling is going to come from. It's fantastic. Jessica, you've said that quality stories breed quality subscribers. Talk to me about how you determine your original price point and why it works for the company. We are $400 a year or $39 a month and have been from day one. We think it's a good price because it is premium. So it's a price that you expect to get value. You expect to get professional value, whether it's 
helping you come up with a strategy for your startup or learning about some inside trend at a bigger company you want to do a partnership with. It's targeted that you expect something, but it's not a thousand dollar a year research service. It is in line with the Wall Street Journal. It's less expensive than the Financial Times. And, and that's really the audience that we continue to think of. It's the decision maker across industries throughout the business world who wants to understand how tech companies are going to try and eat his or her lunch tomorrow. That's why we're at that price. And we feel very good about it. And since the beginning, we have done things like discounted student subscriptions and other ways for people who aren't yet fully baked in their careers to get value from it. But the subscriber we have in mind is the person who doesn't need another thing to read, but is looking for insights and an edge across multiple outlets and and will pay when we can deliver. Excellent. Jessica, how important has it been for you not to take venture capital dollars or frankly, any outside money and remain completely independent from the start? And, And is that something that you think you'll do going forward? It's been very important because it's focused us on building a real business. I think too many startups don't think about revenue and don't think about how to make their product sustainable. I self-funded the company with a little bit to get us started, but almost instantly we've been funded by our subscribers. And so that mentality has absolutely been critical and I think a big differentiator from how other media startups approach their growth as well as particularly other tech startups out in Silicon Valley. So you've really thought about profitability from day one. Yeah, we're cash flow positive now. We're not trying to run the business for profitability. I would like to be investing because I think the opportunity is massive and the reporting talent that is now excited about joining a place like the information is really flowing. And so we're going to be ramping up and hiring much more aggressively on the editorial side. But I think the mentality that, hey, our product is good. People are willing to pay for it. And that is one of those signals that we're going in the right direction is so important. Tech companies prize data and analytics, but you know, the ultimate data and analytics is cash. Mm -hmm. And that has been uh, because we're totally aligned as a hundred percent subscription business, revenue and growth go hand in hand. And it allows us to have a very clear true North when we're deciding what areas to write more about what product enhancements to roll out. So yeah, I think metrics are great, but the ultimate metrics is, are people willing to pay and do you have the cash to keep growing? And that sounds totally in line with what you said at your Spring Subscriber Summit, really to the whole news business, which is it's time to get serious about building the news business. And you clearly have done that. And that's a great model for others to follow. We're super excited about it. And I believe that the fact that we can get to a point in under four years where we're cash flow positive, where we have 14 full-time journalists and about the same number of other people who work at the information, reporters who are breaking important stories about Uber and Snap and diversity and sexual harassment in Silicon Valley, stories that are really driving the conversation. If we can do it, others can do it too. As we've said, you know, we're going to start investing in great reporters who want to build subscription businesses because we believe that this is what is going to make sure that we have great journalism for decades to come. 
And it's not an open question whether people will pay. They will. We have to focus on delivering the product that's worthy of it. Do you count or think about how many stories your team has broken in a given quarter or over the year? We do in a couple different ways. It's a competitive industry and we are competitive up there with the rest of them. One thing we pay very close attention to is which outlets follow our stories, Mm -hmm. either immediately or even a few weeks later. We have stories that have been cited hundreds and hundreds of times across a huge number of news outlets. That is one thing that we track to be able to think about and show our influence. We also quantify the dollar value of deals that we've broken and the like, you know, around 100 billion. We're proud of all that, but, you know, at the end of the day, the stories we're most proud of are just, they're ones that are important, that hit the mark, and that do influence either the conversation or behavior in some way in the industry. And we're seeing more and more of those. So to that point, as a user, I continually marvel at the thoughtful and often lengthy comments that get posted below your articles. And I hope you know how rare that is in the industry. What do you attribute that to? Being a subscription business helps a lot. Those comments are people with their real identities and people are I think, thoughtful about them. Because Because they know other people will read them. Exactly. Sometimes I worry they're too thoughtful in the sense people ask us to edit their comments before they (laughs) post them. And unfortunately, that's not scalable. And frankly, it's unnecessary. But we are proud of that. And I think it does set us apart at a time when news outlets are shutting down their comment section because of trolls. It's another way that our community shines through. You know, I actually woke up this morning to, I think, a story on autonomous vehicles and the CEO of of Waymo is talking and it had a huge number of comments already and I hadn't even gotten around to reading the story. So it's a place of lively conversation. And I think at the end of the day, people are putting a thoughtful foot forward because it's their real identity. It's great. You're a first-time manager, a first-time CEO. What's been the most unexpected part of that journey? I think I underestimated the amount of energy recruiting takes up. It is so paramount. At the end of the day, particularly for us, our product is reinvented twice a day with every article we publish. And so we are really only as good as our reporting, and that means we are only as good as our reporters. It's very different from other sorts of products where you build some software and release it into the world and it just scales. We have the both burden and opportunity to reinvent ourselves constantly. And so reporting talent, as well as as we grow our engineering and product team and our business side, it's relentless. And it's something I think I didn't fully appreciate Not how challenging it would be because I think we've been very fortunate, but like anything, you can get better at it. You want to invest in getting better at it. I think learning how to scale myself and scale our team to become more efficient at recruiting is something I underestimated and have been gradually investing more and more in. Now we're we're actually looking to hire a recruiter, which I thought is a, a startup I couldn't imagine that, you know, that would be an important position early on, but it absolutely is. And we probably should have started looking for someone earlier. So it's a very exciting part of the job to share your vision with smart people you admire, but it is hard. And I think there's no amount of energy and effort that would be too much to put into that. Yet it's not always the first thing on the to-do list every morning. It's a human capital company. Absolutely. So as you know, as a journalist, highly sought after journalists, can jump around and will jump around. What's your special sauce, kind of tricks of the trade to keeping your talent happy and well-fed and 
is it as simple as we let them do what they're best at or are there other things that help that along? That's the core of it. The doing the job you want to do and wake up in the morning is the best opportunity I think we can give folks in our industry. Sadly, too many journalists are spending their time in newsrooms today regurgitating stories that have already been written, that are trending on Twitter, that their editors think will drive clicks. I believe that great journalists today are spending maybe two-thirds of their time on defense, meaning Mm -hmm. something lands on their desk and they just Mm -hmm. have to write it up with a new take, maybe a third or less on their time on what I think is offense, going after the stories that they believe are important, that aren't being told, that take a little bit more work. There's a huge group of people who want to be on offense. That's very important. What's also important, I think, is being part of building something new and benefiting from the growth of that business. You know, we don't throw money at people and write, give them a big boost in salary the day they walk in the door, but we can be competitive. And as a growing business, people's compensation and the experience of working the information improves steadily over time in a way that's absolutely the opposite of the trajectories in many newsrooms as well. And I think knowing that you're part of a place where professionally you have a lot of upside as opposed to just kind of squeaking by is something that's important as well and that we think about a lot. Talk to me about your events business. You clearly think of it as core to your business and not just a nice to have, not an add-on. Did you think about structuring the events business like that from the outset? So how has that business kind of grown and developed? Events for us are important as part of the core subscriber experience. One way our events business is very different from other news companies is it's not a separate revenue stream. We bring on partners for events just to help us put on the event, but we don't charge our subscribers to attend. It's part of being a subscriber to the information. And that was a big choice I made early on. Actually, the news industry was heading in the opposite direction. Many outlets and publications, a huge percentage of their revenues and profits come from selling $7,000 conference tickets. And While in the short term, the revenue's there, to me, that is not a scalable business over the long term. There's only so many people who will pay for some level of exclusivity. As the events gets bigger, it inherently gets less intimate and valuable. And that was, I think, one problem with that business. Secondly, it's a bit different from the content business. Your customers are sponsors. Um, You have to make sure you don't aggravate potential speakers. While there is some overlap I would never wanted to be running an operation where we were dependent financially from pure events. And so thinking of them as ways for our community to meet, to get access to our journalists, to hear from interesting people on stage, that's our very valuable and a great way for some people who maybe haven't heard about the information to hear about us. So from a marketing funnel perspective, it's valuable. But we're very happy being in that boat versus the sponsorship event ticket revenue boat. It's been really fun at your events to meet and talk to your student scholars. Mm-hmm. So what have you learned from the next generation of talent? 
So much. And yeah, we did our first batch of student scholars, finding students who come from diverse range of backgrounds, who are passionate about journalism and technology. And we're very grateful to Liontree and Turner and Slow for helping us with that program and supporting it. And then our team goes on to mentor these students throughout the year, and we bring them to our events as well. I've learned they're very interdisciplinary. So I think we have a scholar named Isabel who is a computer science major and interested in journalism, and another named Stephanie who's really interested in science and journalism. I think that's very cool because obviously... As journalists, we really need to go deep into the subjects we're covering because the readers are so smart and know their stuff and expect that. So I'm always impressed by students who are getting really in-depth knowledge about a particular area but, but still want to be journalists. I think that's great. They're also all very passionate about journalism, and that is so cool. At a time when there's a lot of negative headlines about the business prospects of the industry. Everyone's sort of a journalist of sorts with social media. Uh, it's very important to me to make sure that we have people who still feel this profession is a calling and who believe that they can have awesome careers in it. And that's a message we want to get out loud and clear. In some ways, did that program lead you to start the Informations Accelerator program? It was definitely one of the developments that made me realize the talent is there who wants to come into this industry. And the more we can do to help set people up to be successful in journalism, the better. And I think that just benefits everyone. It benefits society. It benefits the information because we get to meet talented people and learn about the subjects they're interested in. And so just a few months ago, we announced that we'll be investing in journalists and providing expertise and mentorship to help them start companies. We've had 188 applicants from everywhere from Palestine to Mozambique. Impressive. Uh, and I've just spent a couple hours this weekend trying to whittle them down and we're thinking of ways where we can support a small number in the first batch, but also really maybe create some content to help share what we've learned more broadly. It's so encouraging to see the level of interest in journalism right now. So you have readers currently from, I think I read, 84 countries? Yep, we're up to 100. We just crossed that. Congratulations. And you have a bureau in Asia now. How do you think about global expansion of reporting in journalism as tech and media clearly are a global business? Absolutely. I think that the first phase for us is really about getting reporters on the ground to tell important stories where there's just opportunities being underserved by reporting. So the reason we now have three reporters in Hong Kong is despite the incredible number of billion dollar startups in Asia and the incredible amount of impact of those businesses, there are actually relatively few English language business reporters covering those companies. My last count, there were more reporters covering Uber than English language business reporters on the ground in mainland China. So as an entrepreneur, the light bulb kind of went off that that's a opportunity to exploit. I think any great tech story does have a global audience these days. And so if we continue to tell stories other people aren't telling, whether it's about DD, the ride-sharing service, and Xiaomi, or about Uber in San Francisco, the audience is there. We are starting a, in a, about a week. I'll be heading out to Beijing and Hong Kong, and we'll be doing an event there to kind of build the community. But our content strategy in sort of our prioritization of new geographies or beats is guided a lot by the reporting talent and by where we find great reporters who share our vision 
because we don't believe you need to be comprehensive, we believe you just have to be original and important. For us, it's more important to find the right fit reporter than to check a box for a particular subject matter. Can I ask you to put your journalism hat on and tell us, what's the bubbling under tech story that you think people are not paying enough attention to that is really going to bubble to the surface in the next few months? What are we missing as readers and listeners? I think there are a lot that maybe deserve more attention. So they're simmering, but they should be boiling. The analogy, autonomous vehicles just can't be over stated, covered in terms of the impact in so many dimensions. Just this week, we're starting to see a little more regulatory action in the space, but that's a story I don't think Washington has fully woken up to. I think it's also a technology that's going to change the face of cities and real estate and home prices and just sort of everything you can imagine. Aspects of that probably get some headlines, but when we think of technology that's really going to reshape how we live Sooner rather than later, I think it's probably undercovered. Something that is quite dominating in the headlines right now, but I think could probably deserve more coverage as the cryptocurrency boom. The reason I'm excited about that story is I think if you look at how technology has democratized information over the past several decades, capital and liquidity and access to capital, I think is the next thing that technology can really change in a massive way that unlocks huge amount of potential in society. I believe that crypto is sort of going to be the mechanism of that. That's really a question about transforming access to capital. I think it's a huge force for good in many ways that technology can do. A lot of people maybe see the Bitcoin story and think it's some quirky thing the nerds are into, but I actually see it much more as a big step in the evolution of our financial infrastructure and system. And I think that's very cool and something that people in a lot of industries should be thinking about. And it's not something that's years and years away. It's right here, right now. Absolutely. And like most things, it will go through bursts and fits and the evolution will be uneven. People might see crashes and spikes and kind of dismiss it as something. But where I think the market cap for cryptocurrencies right now is about $100 billion. And that's up 4x from the last quarter or something really dramatic. I think it's worth understanding and also putting a lot of scrutiny on because there are a lot of questions about the behavior and speculation and all of that as well. So you lead an incredibly busy life with a New York operation now. And as we talked about, a bureau in Asia, you're going to China again next week. You must have a little bit of downtime to enjoy a favorite podcast or a favorite series. What's either on your just read, just watch list or on your I've got to read, I've got to watch list? I do listen to a lot of podcasts, including this one. I gravitate towards the ones about entrepreneurship, actually, where I feel like there's some lesson that I can extract about building a business. I think that is very valuable because in the day-to-day, you're jumping after just opportunity after opportunity and you don't always stop to reflect about the bigger things you should be thinking about. And I think podcasts are a great time for that. What am I reading? You know, it's funny. I'm reading a book about the history of the Wall Street Journal right now. (laughs) I'm pretty dorky. I recently had a son and during my maternity leave, I read Catherine Graham's autobiography, which I loved and highly recommend. A great story and a great biography. I'm a big fan of biographies as well, because I do think it's exactly as you said, there's so many lessons learned. Absolutely. Jessica, thanks for your time today. Good to see you, and we'll see you on the other coast. Thanks, Betsy. 
Okay, before we go, let's see how you did on Jeremy's quiz question. Which of the following digital news properties has the most monthly unique visitors? A. Fox News B. The New York Times C. CNN or D. Yahoo News And the answer is C. CNN with 112 million monthly unique visitors. Digital properties with the largest audiences have a significant presence on multiple platforms, especially television in the case of CNN, Fox News, CNBC, and others. In 2017, digital news has also seen a spike in subscriptions, with the New York Times growing subscription revenue 46% from Q2 2016 to Q2 2017, and the Washington Post reaching 1 million digital subscriptions in September 2017. Sites like The Atlantic, Slate, and Bloomberg are experimenting with tiered membership, offering features such as exclusive content and members-only event access for higher-tiered subscribers. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can always find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review at iTunes as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.